you're visiting, my name is Peter, and I serve on the team of elders that lead the church. And today we complete our Amazing Grace series, our preaching series we're doing alongside thousands of other believers around the world in our Every Nation family. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet to honor God's word. We're going to go back to the book of Titus. It's a letter that was written from the Apostle Paul to a young minister named Titus, which is a pretty cool name. We're going to be in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all, un- all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The word of the Lord. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, please add a supernatural blessing to the reading of your word that goes beyond our thoughts and opinions. Lord, you appeared to us. Jesus, you were born into our experience as a poor child, and you lived, and you died, and you rose. But Lord, I confess that I don't often live my life in light of this reality, the allowing your life to be the main thing that defines my life and my days. And I also confess that I rarely live in light of the reality that you're coming back. So I'm asking, Lord, that you would help us to live in light of reality, to really see what you've done, what you're doing with real and renewed eyes and to live in an unusual way, a way that's appropriate for what you're doing in history. Amen. If you're taking notes, the title of my message is Between Appearings. I want to spend the first half of my time in our text here in Titus 2 teaching about the two appearings we see in Titus 2. Then I want to spend the second part of my message, salut, second part of my message really showing, therefore, how we ought to live in this life between these two appearings. So first thing is this. In our passage here, between verses 11 and 14, we see two appearings of Christ mentioned in, in this, these four verses. I think we need to understand these two appearings distinctly in order to navigate what the text is all about, what our passage means. But I think we need to understand the two appearings of Christ in order to navigate what life is all about and what the purpose of life is. So here we go. The first appearing that we see in our passage is what's called the incarnation of Jesus. 
Paul says it happened like this, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This word appeared comes from the, the original word used is epiphino. It's, a, it's an explicit appearing. And it's important to understand it's a special type of appearing because Jesus was appearing in the Old Testament in veiled ways. Jesus shows up in the Old Testament. He shows up as the, the angel of God to Abraham and Sarah. He starts walking, I think, kind of dancing around in a furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel. Jesus shows up and appears in the Old Testament, but this type of epiphino appearing, this word where we get our English word epiphany, it's a special and explicit type of, of appearing. In this epiphany, Jesus' first appearing, his first coming, his incarnation, he's born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit, with no seed of sin in him, and therefore lives a perfect life, chooses to die a sacrificial death as our substitute for our sin, and then he rises again from the dead to secure our eternity with him. That's a lot for a life right there. That's why it says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. This phrase, bringing salvation, is so important. If we really grasp these two words, the false gospels that we allow to cook up in our minds would be burned away. Bringing salvation. Now, if you ever hear a preacher or anyone else use the word salvation and you're lost at what that word means, that's okay. The word salvation is similar to the, the word saved. It's, it's all about being saved by the Savior. So if you ever heard, here's salvation, it's the noun for saving, okay? So Jesus brings salvation, Paul says here. He brings salvation. He doesn't just come to earth in his first appearing and make salvation possible for us. He brings salvation, full and complete, signed, sealed, delivered. He didn't just come to show us the way. He didn't just come to give us an example about how we could live our lives so that if we're serious enough and religious enough, then we'll kind of like uh, allow our lives to be kind of like Jesus. Kind of like in the 1990s, there was a, the bracelets that we had, what would Jesus do? WWJD. To, to, you know, we live and do what Jesus, it, honestly, that should just show us what we can't do. And why we need salvation. Jesus didn't come to just show us a way to salvation. He brings salvation. And it says here, he brings salvation to all people. Now, this doesn't mean that every human being will go to heaven. What this means when it says the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people is that this complete work of salvation that no man can add to, none of us can improve upon, it's full and it's complete, it's made available to every single person. There's not a single person, not a single ethnicity that God is unable to save. The salvation he brings is more potent than the sin that we spread. So his first appearing where he brings salvation and accomplishes justification is what Paul's talking about here. The element of salvation called justification. 
We're saved from the eternal punishment of not living the way we were designed to live. He justifies us because he lived the life we should have lived and he died the death that we should have died. And that's why he can bring salvation and justify, forgive, cancel our debt. I've heard it said this way, I'm justified and it's just as if I'd never sinned. See, my my sin really does have the power to condemn me. But the saving grace of Jesus Christ has a greater power to justify me. It speaks a better word. And how is that? Thank you for asking. Verse 14, it actually lays out how he justifies us in his first appearing. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. The word all means all. All the lawlessness that you're aware of, but even all the lawlessness that you're not aware of, that we overlook in our own lives, we give ourselves a pass on. So we'll see that salvation not only restores us to live unto a new and powerful redeemed law, it also, salvation redeems us, cancels the old debt and the guilt from the old law that we were never able to live out. This word redeem, he gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. The word that's translated redeem is litro. And it, this Greek word's only used three times in the New Testament. It's a special type of redemption it's talking about. It means to release on receipt of ransom, to free a slave by paying a ransom. So when Jesus justifies me, I'm no longer a slave to sin and to the powers of darkness. He's broken those chains. So in the second appearing, Christ does something different in salvation. The the next element when he comes back in the future, it's not justification. it's It's another element of salvation that he brings called glorification. Glorification. That's what verse 13 calls the blessed hope. We need to understand that what he does in salvation distinctly in order to navigate what life's about all today. And verse 13 talks about something not yet. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing. It's the second time this word appearing is used. Same word, epiphino. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Glorification. So both justification, the saving grace of Christ's first appearing, canceling the debt from how we should have lived our life, and glorification, the saving grace of his final appearing, are elements of salvation. But our passage is mostly about the saving grace that happens between all of that, in between being justified or forgiven for our old life or regenerated, made new, made into a Christian, in between being justified and being glorified. The day in the future, where whenever we die or Jesus comes back, whichever comes first, and we're made like him, able to be in his presence fully. Our passage is mostly about the life That's between all of that. Namely, the other element of salvation, 
sanctification. See, justification frees you from the guilt and the emptiness of not being the way Jesus called us to be. And glorification brings the fullness that we're fully fit to be in Jesus' manifest presence forever. But sanctification, sanctification, this in-between element, frees us and gives us grace for the process in between. Or if you're from Canada, the, the process in between. The life that we have now. To be present with Jesus. Okay, some of y'all are still with me here. I don't think you're from Canada, though. Now, to better understand sanctification as it's sandwiched in our text, think of it this way. Sanctifying grace frees us to live in the implications of his first appearing, I mean the consequences, and with the expectation of his second appearing. To live between appearings. To live appropriately, knowing what Jesus has done, where he's taken us from and where he's taking us, and what the Holy Spirit intends to do in us today. To not live lives that are unchained from the reality that he's got us and he's delivering us to something way better than the chains that would hold us back. So in order, as Paul says in Philippians 2, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, we need to have a better understanding of what salvation is. And so just to, just to make sure that we're still tracking here, I'm going to kind of pick at you a little bit and, and use a real edgy evangelical question with you. Are you saved? Now, if you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, as simple as this, Jesus died for my sin and I believe in him, then yes, you are saved, but that's not all. See, there's a paradox. You're saved, you're being saved, and you will be saved all at the same time. In in other words, I was justified by Christ when he died on the cross. I was saved. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm still being saved. I'm being sanctified. And someday I will be glorified when I see him face to face. I see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and nothing hinders my enjoying his presence. No distractions. Not even this silly rectangle will distract me in that day. Three elements of salvation. I've heard it put this way. That's also helpful. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Justification is we were freed from the penalty of sin. Sanctification is we are being freed from the power of sin. And glorification is we will be freed from the presence of sin. And it's important to understand those in right context because life here, in between appearings, It's all about the process of being conformed through the work of the Holy Spirit. And as disciples in a church that go to growth groups and confess our sin to one another and pray for one another that we might be healed and strengthened unto our purpose in life. And what is the purpose of sanctification? In two words, it's simply more Jesus. The Holy Spirit intends to make you more like Jesus. 
And the sanctification process involves confessing areas that are not yet so that he can build us up for the what will be. And in this process, therefore, if you understand these things distinctly, you can know and not be crippled by guilt from your past because you know that you're justified and you won't be hindered by anxiety. The anxiety that comes from not yet being a finished product because that you know that you're not yet glorified, but you will be. He who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. It doesn't say he who began a good work in you tells you that you need to try harder. No, you know, I'm no longer a sinner, but I'm not yet glorified. I'm not a sinner that habitually pushes Jesus away. Now I'm a saint that habitually pushes sin away. And that's what his grace progressively allows me to do. And I can grow in the habits in the process. And sanctification is a training process of heavenly habits that we grow in. And this is what our passage mostly talks about. Now I say a training process because look how, look how verse 11 goes to verse 12, bringing salvation to all people, training us. The word it uses for training is the Greek word paideia. Paideia in the, in the Greek culture was a, a special thing that they, whether it was an educational element or a parenting element, it was seeing a child's growth in particular as more than just the intellectual things that they were learning, but the growth, the paideia of the whole person, body, soul, and spirit. And any of y'all have ever parented know that the training process of parenting is a messy process, not just literally, but emotionally. It's a messy process. And God, who's still fathering me, still knows that I'm often a messy person too. And I'm saying, don't add shame to the mess. We can have grace to grow in the mess. And to illustrate this, I have to tell you about one of my favorite people on earth right now. And that is Marcus Limonis, who is from CNBC's The Prophet, P-R-O. F-I-T. It's a show. And Marcus comes into a business. He's a, I think he's one of the CEOs of like a really big company, rich guy. And in this show, he comes into a smaller struggling business that's on the verge of failing. And he finds kind of what their vision is and if he can help them or, and if their business thriving would help him. And after a while, he decides whether or not he's going to help the business. And then when he does, he makes them an offer, basically an equity offer. He'll say something like, I'll help you for 50% of the business. Now, here's how it relates to our process of salvation. People take this deal because they know that their business won't make it without Marcus's help. And they won't reach the, the glory of what they're designed to be without Marcus saving them from collapse or bankruptcy And they would rather have 50% of a thriving business than 100% of a dead business. And so they do a deal with Marcus. Now, I realize that my, uh, the, the glory element, the glorification element of this analogy is lacking, but stay with me. 
Because the first thing that Marcus does when he partners with this business is he writes them one check that immediately cancels any and all debt that this business has taken on. Totally, it's like a a restart, right? And then he writes them another check. And this check is to invest in the messy training process that follows. And it's really fun. This is where all the drama from the show comes out. They get the people at their worst, and it's a lot of fun to watch. But the training process involves Marcus helping them to be a business that's fit for his name. It's interesting. He's already bought into the business before they act like a business that Marcus Limonis should be acting like. Think about that. Jesus dies for our sin before we're acting like children of his own possession. And then he sanctifies us unto our new identity. One of the cool things about what happens in the show is in the middle of this process, Marcus says this. He says, hey, as you've seen on my show, from here on out, I'm 100% in charge of this transition. If I'm going to help you, I need that authority. That's what he tells these businesses. Think about what Jesus does for us. He comes and redeems us. He cancels our debt. And then the training process that ensues is messy. Amen? But listen, it's messy grace. It's a mess that he's paid for. And in the process of this mess, Jesus will do no negotiations or compromises about who really is the Lord. He's either the Lord of all in your life or he's not the Lord at all. And in the mess of his lordship bearing down over and against our sin, it's a mess. And he's saying, it's not just a mess, it's my mess, if you're mine. So don't add shame to your sanctification. Hebrews 10 says it like this. God disciplines those he loves. So listen, beloved, if you find yourself in the midst of the mess of the test in your life, maybe it's not because God's left you alone. Maybe it's because he hasn't left you alone. He's justified the implications of that mess. And now he's allowing it to come to the forefront in your life so he can work on it. He's justified you and he's made you his own and there's glory ahead. But right now there's grace to grow. And it hurts a little bit and that's good. The ability to feel pain is one important sign of a body that's rightly functioning. And so as the process of sanctification carries on, Paul details some of the elements of this mess. Sanctification involves renouncing, living, and waiting. And we'll just go in order from what our passage declares. All these elements is what God finds necessary, evidently, in this passage for this training process we're talking about. The the grace of God has appeared, verse 11, bringing salvation for all people and training us, verse 12, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That's a personal question. Do you ever find yourself tempted by things you've already fallen to in the past? Is it just me? Y'all can be honest. 
I think that's pretty much all of temptation right there. The enemy tries to tempt us with the lies of our past that have already been paid for by Jesus. And what does Jesus want to do in this temptation? He wants the temptation to become a test that strengthens us. It's all the things that we've already been washed from. In the context of our passage, we're tempted and we're given grace to renounce the things that we've already been purified from, but things that we're also still being purified in. Verse 14, he gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession that are zealous for good works. This word purify comes from the same word where we get our word catharsis, which means to boil to the surface. It's a particular type of heated up purification process. See, we were already forgiven from the penalty and the effects of the sin inside of us. It's forgiven, but Jesus would see fit to pull those things up, to turn up the heat in your life so that the things that have already been forgiven and also the things that can still affect your life, they would be brought to the surface so that you can name them and renounce them. Every bit of lust and sin and pride and false allegiance to lesser governments or musicians. He wants to bring those things up and cut off any allegiance that would hinder you from thriving with Jesus. There is no other God beside him. He doesn't just want to be your favorite. He wants to be your one and only. And for you to fully belong to him, there's a process process whereby the things that are against his nature and his name can no longer belong to you. They're boiled up and they're renounced. We see this happen specifically in Victory Weekend. If you haven't signed up for it, we have, I think, only about eight or nine spots left open for February 1st. What we see in Victory Weekend, for instance, with forgiveness Because of justification and what Jesus did on the cross, the Father can look on you through the blood of the cross and no longer regard you with unforgiveness, which his justice requires. Because the justice of the cross overshadows reasons for unforgiveness in our life. So he can cancel unforgiveness and justify you. And in the sanctification process, He's calling you to pull out any remaining unforgiveness that's in you so that you can renounce it. And so what we see in Victory Weekend is God kind of turns up the heat on people like our father or other friends or people who've betrayed us that we're carrying around unforgiveness with so that we can verbally cancel and come out of agreement with that unforgiveness. And there's a unique kind of freedom when that thing that we've already been forgiven from but now we're no longer bound by sanctification. He purifies for himself a people for his own possession. And the process gets heated. Now, notice how it says purify for himself. When God wants to purify you, it's not just purity for purity's sake. God, the sanctification process is not so that you can be a better you. It's not so that you can be a better father husband, wife, alone. 
he purifies a people for himself. So a subcategory of that is, I think we'll see that we're better citizens and members of our families. Amen. Next week, we're going to talk about how to be a type of people that reside in our nation, but belong to a greater kingdom. We're going to go back into Romans and see just how we can be resident aliens. But we are to be more than just citizens in this nation, good citizens or good members of our family. He purifies a people for his own possession. Doesn't leave it to purity as we define it. If you read the King James, it says he purifies for himself a peculiar people for his own possession. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are peculiar. Lord, let us be increasingly peculiar as we renounce anything else. Amen. Sanctification involves renouncing ungodliness and worldly lusts, and it involves living Verse 12, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now notice verse 1 through 10, if you want to peek in your Bible, verses 1 through 10 really detail what self-controlled, upright, godly lives look like for men and women and young and old distinctly. But uh, I learned to count in kindergarten. I should have learned before, but hey, it happened. After 10 comes what? 11, nailed it. You guys are right with me here. Paul saw fit to, after describing what a Christian life looks like in verses 1 through 10, to remind us that it is only the product of supernatural grace and not our performance. So you can't live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives with anything other than the product of his power in your life. Consider this word, live. This is another one of those words that's not used often in the New Testament. The word translated live really means to enjoy real life. Kind of as opposed to enjoying falsity of life, like the first 14 years of my life. Let me tell you some other places where this word, zao, this word translated live, is, is listed. The first time it's mentioned in the Bible, Jesus is being tempted by the enemy. And he responds in Matthew 4, 4. He answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So we see that this is more than just some sort of physical living. A little later on, Matthew 16, Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So for us to live as products of grace In sanctifying grace, we are to live in such a way where we're living in the presence and under the power of the living God and nothing less. Or as my favorite theologian, William Wallace, put it, all men die, but not all men truly love. I think I tried to do it. I should have practiced that accent before. All men die, but not all men truly live. I thought that would give us a lot more of a testosterone boost, but moving on. (laughs) The other thing here, training us to live this sort of life that God calls us to live, but not just any time, but in the present age. 
Not, not in a simpler time, like, oh, I could obey the Bible if there weren't all the temptations in our culture and, and on the internet and stuff like that. No, in the present age. How many of us were alive in the 60s? The answer is zero. None of us were alive. Some of us were alive in the 1960s, but this was written in the AD. <laughs> the AD 60s. None of us. Now, Paul, if you know anything about the first century living and what the challenges for Christians in the first century, the explicit challenges, we can know that, man, if the grace of God provides power for Christians then to live, then in the 2020s today, in the present time, I can live like this. Sanctification involves renouncing, living, and finally waiting. Waiting is everyone's favorite hobby, right? Anyone else? Probably no one. If, you, if waiting is like your favorite thing ever, we, uh, we have a list of counseling services that we provide. But, I mean, or just maybe you can counsel me because that's power right there. But it's no one's favorite thing to do. But in the process of waiting, the product that God can give us when we're waiting on him is amazing. There's a parallel verse in Hebrews that really, like our passage, ties together the appearings of Christ with the element of waiting in salvation. Hebrews 9, 27 through 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him, waiting for him. So we don't wait just for the sake of waiting. We wait because there's a promise of something so much better coming that we trade off for. I need to illustrate this by something that happened Tuesday afternoon in one of my favorite hobbies, which is eating. It was late in the afternoon on Tuesday, and I'd just gotten home from our staff meeting with church staff, and I was about to snack, and I decided not to, but I didn't decide not to snack just for the sake of not snacking. That's stupid. I decided not to snack because I knew I could smell that my wife was cooking up some sort of soup thing, and it was, I waited, and look, it was worth it. And I'm still working on, I apologize for eating all the leftovers the next day. But look, in life, we wait not just for the sake of waiting, but because the promise that Jesus offers us is so much better. That's why in the, song, the book Song of Solomon says, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not awaken love before its time. He doesn't just want us to sit around waiting on nothing. If you're waiting and you're desiring a spouse, it very well could be a desire that comes from God. And so you don't just wait on nothing. You wait on God and God's best. And you trade any lesser thing for that end. And by the way, God's best is not a man. God's best is his provision and his timing. We wait on God because it's always better than what we can try to manufacture for ourselves. We wait. And our elder team, our first year of being together as a team, I feel, I feel like this is the biggest thing that we've seen is the power of waiting on God together and praying. And this is like the last thing in my nature. Like, 
I could not do like, really guys, we're just going to wait till the next meeting to decide this thing. Oh, turns out it's like months later. And God has a way of pacing us as we wait on him. We've seen more that our job as elders is less to try to do things and kind of move God's hand if we could even do that. It has more to do as watching what God is doing together and waiting on him. It says here we're waiting. In our text, we're not just waiting on things we want from God. We're not just waiting on blessings from heaven. It says waiting for his glorious appearing. I want, to, I want our minds to be thinking about what that would look like, his glorious appearing. I'm going to read some Bible about what his appearing that we're waiting on is. And I pray that God would put in context the mess that we're struggling with so that we could surrender that on the altar with expectation of the person whose return we're waiting on. Revelation 1, I saw one like the son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden girdle round his breast. He, his head and his hair were white as wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held the seven stars. From his mouth issued a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Or consider what Jesus said in Matthew. Behold, the Son of Man will come in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, and from one end of heaven to the other, and we shall glorify the Lord and enjoy his greatness forever and ever. Second Timothy 4. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. So ask yourself, do you love his appearing? And specifically, do you love his appearing more than any other distraction or life goal that's in front of you? Jesus is coming back someday to rectify what is wrong and to judge. And you don't have to be comfortable with his future appearing to love it. In fact, I'd argue that you can't love his glory at all, any less his glorious appearing, if you're fully comfortable with it. It's better than comfort. It's sanctified danger that we wait on that displaces all of our darkness and distraction. So let's dare to wait for him, even as we remember him. Would you stand to your feet with me?